Good morning. Uh, this this event with Bob is sponsored by Vineyard Community Church, Hope Rising Daily, House of Prayer for Everyone Everywhere, and um, and and kind of a new entity, and that is Saddleback uh, Turn, uh, uh, the Upper Room Network. And so uh, we're just excited about the season, challenging season, but this is uh, timely worship and, uh, and a word about the key of David that would open up a door that no man can shut. So we welcome you. I just bless you to enjoy this time with Bob Sorge from uh, Kansas City, incredible teacher, prophetic teacher, and we just uh, I'm so happy to have him here today. Lord bless everyone who gets to watch this and and bless the message that would go deep into people's hearts and lives and into the community in Jesus name. Amen. Greetings everyone. We are in Orange County, California having a beautiful morning here and this is part two of a two-part series that we have prepared on uh, our theme is going after the keys of the kingdom. In part one, we talked about how Joseph went after the keys to his prison. You want to find part one. It's on YouTube somewhere. Find it and uh, check out that first segment. And today we're going to talk about how David got his key. The scripture talks about the key of David. And here's my thing on it. I believe the key of David was an actual, literal, physical key. And I'm going to talk about it in this session. Lord Jesus, we ask you for your help and your grace that as we come to the word of God now, Lord, may you help us uh, to help me in the, in the speaking, help us in the hearing, and may this message touch many hearts, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to start with 1 Samuel 17, verse 54. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Now that's one of the most random verses in the Bible when you look at it in the context. David, David has killed Goliath. He's beheaded him. And he takes the skull of Goliath under his arm and takes it to Jerusalem. This is such a random verse. And the reason it's so random is not because David has the skull of a giant under his arm. The reason it's so random is because of Jerusalem. At this time in Israel's history, Jerusalem was nothing. Nobody was talking about Jerusalem. Saul was king at the time. He had his capital in a totally different city, the city of Gibeah. And so Jerusalem is on nobody's radar. 
Why are you taking the skull of Goliath to Jerusalem? Answer, David has divine information from Samuel. You recall that Samuel had anointed David prior to this event, had anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And in the exchange, Samuel had given David some prophetic information, including this. He had said to David, one day you're going to be king of Israel and Jerusalem is going to be your capital city and you're going to establish your White House. The capital that you live in is going to be established in the fortress of Zion. David knows this. Now, something to understand about Jerusalem. It's a city with two boroughs. There is the old city called Zion. It's a fortress in and of itself contained within uh, walls of uh, its fortress. And then outside of Zion was the new part of town, Jerusalem. Because Zion itself was quite small and it could not hold all the population. So the population spilled over and had, uh, and you had a newer part of town, Jerusalem. So David goes to Jerusalem with the skull of David in, in his hand. He sets the skull of David on a rock, turns it to face the stronghold of Zion, and goes one down one to go. I've taken the giant down. Next to come down is the stronghold of Zion. And so David is prophetically declaring over Zion, you're coming down. And we're going to be looking at the story of how David took the stronghold of Zion when he became king of Israel. Now, when David was crowned king of the 12 tribes, he had, uh, he, he had to organize an army. And so uh, he, he's got to develop a military cabinet. And he decides to uh, set on his military cabinet captains in the army. These captains were appointed by David because of their exploits. Each of these captains on his military cabinet had a story to tell. So they're called David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23. And the greater the exploit, the higher the rank. So, uh, number one among the captains was a guy by the name of Adino. The scripture says that Adino killed 800 men by himself at one time. Now, Goliath killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Here's, Goli here's Samson. Here's a Dino right after him, 800. I mean, a Dino is the kind of guy you want to agree with rather quickly. You don't want this guy your enemy. He is incredible. And he's first of the captains. 
captains. Second of the captains was a guy by the name of Eliezer. Eliezer also had a story to tell. He's like, okay, uh, the Philistines attack. Somebody goes, the Philistines are coming. Everybody ran for cover. And Eliezer goes, I was about to run for cover in something then took hold of me. I can't really explain it. It was kind of like a holy indignation or something, but something grabbed hold of me and I decided I'm not going that way. I'm going this way. I grabbed my sword and I came after the Philistines. I began to swing my sword. Something came on me and I began to swing my sword and the Philistines began to fall. One, two, three, four, and bodies everywhere. At the end of it, they turned and ran. Those that were surviving, they turned and ran. My sword, my hand was wrapped around my sword and they could not get the sword out of my hand because my hand was frozen <laughs> to the sword and everybody else just came back for plunder. Eliezer, he was a bad dude. Third captain in the army, his name was Shama. Shama goes, I got a story to tell. Here's what happened. We were, we were harvesting lentils. Now we had planted the lentils, fertilized the lentils, watered them, cared for them, tend for them. And then when it was harvest time, we're harvesting the lentils. And just when we're harvesting, here comes the cry. The Philistines are coming. Everybody ran for cover. And Shammah goes, I was about to run. Something took hold of me. I don't know what happened, but just something inside of me goes, I'm not running. I'm going to stand right here on this ground of lentils. I took my sword. I took my stand. And as the Philistines came, I began to swing my sword. And I'm tell I don't know how to account for it. They began to fall. One, two, three, four. And God gave us a mighty victory that day because of the power of God that came upon me in that battle. So to be one of David's mighty men, to be a captain in David's army, you had to have a story to tell. And there were some qualifications that were necessary to become a captain in David's army. I've, I've broken them down to five elements. You had to have five things going if you're going to become a captain in David's army. Number one, you've got to be gifted. But that wasn't quite enough. You had to be trained. But that still wasn't quite enough. You had to be Buff, I mean, working out in good physical condition, but that still wasn't enough. You had to be experienced. If there weren't any novices that were made captains in David's army. You had to be a veteran, an experienced warrior. 
But those four, in and of themselves, were still not enough to become a captain in David's army. You had to have the fifth element, anointing. There was an anointing from the Holy Spirit. It, it rested on David, and then it came on his guys. It was a Davidic anointing. And each of David's captains had a story to tell, not simply of their own strength and power, but they had a story to tell of the power of God that came on them and enabled them to do exploits for the king for the for the kingdom of God. And a common denominator in the stories of David's captains, and you can read their stories in Second Samuel twenty-three. A common denominator in each of their stories was this: single-handed exploits. Everybody left, and I was standing all by myself. And when the Philistines came, nobody helped me. I was by myself, single-handed exploits. And the reason that's important is because there's no confusing who God used. To give the victory, and now these guys have a story to tell, and it qualified them to become captains in the army of David. Now, there's one captain in David's army. He's actually the captain over all the captains. He's called the general. He's going to be captain over the whole army. And his name is Joab. And it's interesting that Joab has really a strong story to tell. But when you read the stories of David's mighty man, it's not present. Second Samuel 23. There's no mention of Joab. All the other captains are mentioned, but Joab isn't mentioned. That's because his story is so spectacular, so significant and singular, that it gets its own mention in an entirely different portion of Scripture. And so we're going to look at the exploit that qualified Joab to become the captain of the whole army. The story is in Second Samuel chapter five. Now, this story has a sister passage in First Chronicles eleven. In First Chronicles eleven, it tells us very plainly that Joab is the one that uh, accomplishes this exploit. In the version we're going to look at in Second Samuel chapter five, Joab is not named in Second Samuel five. He's the guy that we're looking at. Second Samuel 5, verses 6 to 8. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, 
stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. When David is made king over all the tribes of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5, first order of business on his to-do list, he says, we're going after Zion. It's going to be my White House. It's going to be my, my palace. It's going to be where I live. And so that's the first order of business we're going after, the stronghold of Zion. And David, is, he's got two things he wants to accomplish at this moment in his, uh, in his monarchy. Number one, he needs to establish who is going to be the general of his army. He needs to appoint a general, number one, over the whole thing. And number two, he needs to take the stronghold of Zion. And he decides to kill two birds with one stone. He's like, okay, we can do this thing. I am going to make the taking of Zion a qualifying exploit. Whoever takes Zion will become the captain over the whole army. Taking Zion was like a triathlon. It was going to require a multiple gifting. In other words, if you were just good with handling a sword, like a, maybe a Dino was, you know, killed 800 men. If you're good with just a sword, that's not going to be good enough because if you're going to take the stronghold of Zion, it's going to require giftings in multiple uh, areas. It's going to demand strength, agility, ingenuity, endurance, creativity, and problem solving courage, swordsmanship, multiple giftings. And so David goes, whoever can pull this one off will have demonstrated that they have the kind of gift set that qualifies them to be captain over the whole army. Now, somebody listening to this right now might be thinking to themselves, well, if you're going to take the stronghold of Zion, why don't you just do a siege? I mean, that was the ancient answer. If you're going to take out a fortress, you just build a siege around the thing and you starve them out. And, uh, well, water was the big issue in, in an arid uh, country such as Israel. So you just cut off the water supply, you build a siege around the fortress, and uh, in no time at all, you're going to be able to take the thing. Problem. Zion had indoor plumbing. It was remarkable in its era because they had an indoor 
is no other city like it. I'm going to try to explain this to you. The city of Jerusalem sits where it is today because of one geological feature. An ancient spring called Gihon. The Gihon Spring was, it was a year-round spring that kind of acted like a siphon. It was an intermittent spring in the rainy wet season. That spring would erupt, oh, maybe six, seven, eight times a day. In the dry season of summer, it might come down to just once a day that it would run. But it, this was the remarkable thing about Kaihan. Even in the thick of summer, it would still produce water at least once a day. So it was a siphon effect. It would kind of build up underground water and then it would come up and siphon off uh, multiple times a day, the Gihon Spring. The earliest settlers to that part of the world, when they came across this spring, they're like, we're building a settlement here. Jerusalem is one of the most ancient cities in the world because of the Gihon Spring. The earliest settlers chose Jerusalem before any of the other surrounding uh, towns to settle because of this spring. A source of fresh underground water year-round. And so they constructed a settlement around the, the Gihon Spring. At some point in their history, somebody came up with an idea. They went like this. They said, let's build a fortress on top of this hill where that guy on spring comes out. So they built this fortress walls with stones. It was just a, it was a massive fortress. Well, not large in size, but it was a significant military fortress that they built on top of this hill. And then they redirected water of the spring, which ordinarily would have just run down the hill into the Kidron Valley. They said, let's build, let's, let's tunnel into the mountain, chisel our way and build a tunnel system into the heart of the mountain underneath this fortress. And then in the middle of the mountain, we'll carve out a pool, a cistern, a pool to collect the water. And then we'll have an outlet. So the water from the Gihon Spring will redirect it. It'll come, it'll flow from this into this tunnel, 30 feet into the middle of the mountain where there was a pool that they had carved out in the middle of the mountain that would hold water. And then they had an outlet so that water would flow out of the pool through another tunnel that went down the other side of the hill that was about 500 feet long. 
Now, the reason that we know these distances and know how the thing looked is because of geological discoveries. Geo uh, geologists and, and, our, and archaeologists have, uh, have figured out how the whole thing worked. And uh, I've done some research on this. By the way, I've got a book that I've written on the taking of the stronghold of Zion. I'm holding it up for the screen here. It's called Open from the Inside. You'll want to get this book. But what I'm telling you now about the, about the way this thing worked is actually some research I've been able to do since writing that book. And so uh, what I'm going to tell you about uh, the water shaft today is actually more accurate than what I have in that book. But you'll get the same principles. So they, uh, they, they had this underground cistern to hold the water, and then they carved out a tunnel that went 500 feet to the other side of the mountain, and that was the outlet, so that if they didn't use all the water in the wet, rainy season, there would be a way for the excess water to drain out. And of course, if you want the cistern to stay fresh, you've got to have not only an intake, you have to have an outlet. And so they were creative about it. They found a way to drill through the mountain. Some guy on his belly chiseled his way through the stone 500 feet. Now that was a project. So some guy on his belly chiseling through the mountain made an outlet for the water so that uh, the water would remain fresh in the cistern. Now, the pool, the underground pool cistern, did not sit directly under the fortress. We know this because of archaeology. The fortress had a water shaft that was, get it now, 50 feet deep. It's in Jerusalem right now. It still, it still is there. Today they call it Warren's shaft. You can do a Google search on this. Just Google Warren's shaft and the whole thing will come up on your screen. It's called Warren's shaft because in 1867, uh, a, a guy by the name of Charles Warren discovered this water shaft. It's the water shaft of David's story. The walls are chiseled smooth, and the thing goes straight down 50 feet. But it doesn't go down to the pool, it goes down to a landing area. And then once you get to the bottom of the water shaft, you have to go through another series of tunnels for maybe another 30 feet or so, 20, 30 feet. You go through some tunnels and some steps and so on that would take you further into the mountain where you would access the cistern, the pool where the water was. So. Here's how I think the system worked. I think they had two ropes that went down the water shaft. One rope was for a guy that needed to go up and down. If you needed to get down or if it needed to get up, they had a rope for the guy to crawl up or crawl down on. Then there was a second rope that was used to bring up the water because you would not bring up the water on your back. You would actually attach the water at the bottom 
bottom of the water shaft to a rope. And then a guy 50 feet above you at the surface would pull the water up with a rope to the surface. So to get water from the bottom of the water shaft to the top, it was a two-man job. A guy at the top pulling the rope up and a guy at the bottom putting the bucket of water on the rope. So the guy at the bottom of the water shaft, his job was take the bucket, go through the maze, go through the tunnels, get down to the pool where the water was, fill the bucket with water, come back through the 20, 30 feet of the tunnel to the base of the water shaft, attach the water bucket to the rope, and then the guy at the top is going to pull the rope up to the surface, and a bucket of fresh water is now made available to everyone who is living inside this stronghold. And they probably would spend multiple hours a day making the trek to the pool, bringing it to the rope, and getting water to feed the inhabitants of the stronghold of Zion. Now, now, now here's something else they did. When they took the water from the Gihon Spring, which was external, on the, on the external part of the mountain, they chiseled their way into the mountain to redirect it. So now, instead of the water going down the hill, the water's going into the tunnel and feeding the pool. At that entrance, they constructed a fortification a bulwark, a wall. So there's this fortification that surrounded the entrance to the Gihon Spring because this was the source and they're going to protect the source. So there is a protective wall, a fortification that's protecting the entry of where the water is being channeled into the underground tunnel. Plus, it was probably guarded by guards. So when David says that we're going to take the stronghold of Zion through the water shaft, you're probably not going to get access to the part of the whole thing where the water goes from the spring into the mountain. If you're going to take the water shaft, you're probably going to have to do it 500 feet away at the outlet from the pool. 500 feet away. Uh, there is an outlet somewhere way down the other side of the mountain toward the pool of Siloam. There's another outlet somewhere over there where in the wind, wind in the wet season, there would be enough flow that there would be water that would come, excess water through the outlet, and would exit down the other side of the mountain. I hope I've made it clear enough that you can visualize what's going on here. So Zion was a stronghold. It was a stronghold because they had their own underground supply of water year-round. And it didn't matter.
matter if you did a siege around the fortress. They had their own indoor supply of water. Plus, as a fortress built on a hill, there were three sides of the fortress that from the walls of the fortress, it was a hill going down. So if you tried to attack Zion from three directions, you would have an upward climb to a fortress. And then there's a fourth side that's more flat where there's an entryway. But that part of the fortress is protected by an iron gate. And then there are uh, the, the, on the top of the fortress, there's room for warriors to uh, be stationed on top of the fortress. So anybody that attempted to take the stronghold of Zion, well, they had a welcome wagon committee waiting for them. Guys on top of the fortress that had a variety of gifts that they would freely bestow upon anyone that wanted to enter their community. They had projectiles and rocks and bricks and stones and flaming arrows and, and boiling oil and all kinds of little gifts to say welcome to the neighborhood. So if you try to take the stronghold of Zion, not only did you have the natural terrain of the country against you, because that's what a stronghold was. A stronghold was a fortress that was easily protected because of the topography of the land. Not only was it difficult to get to Zion, but if you tried, warriors stationed above the fortress that were protecting and guarding their fortress. So the stronghold of Zion had never been conquered by Israel. It was inhabited by Gentiles, by Canaanites. They called themselves Jebusites, which was a takeoff from the name Jerusalem. They were Jebusites. Zion was inhabited by Gentiles, Jebusites. When Joshua came through at the conquering of Canaan, they were able to take the new part of town, Jerusalem. So when you read the story, they took Jerusalem. Yeah, they took the new part of town. They could not take the old city, the fortress of Zion. Later, the men of Benjamin and Judah came through and they tried to conquer it. They couldn't conquer it. Then when Saul became king, he didn't even try. So here now, in the time of Saul, you've got this fortress in the middle of the land that has been unconquered, and it's inhabited by Jebusites, Canaanites, Gentiles. So when David becomes king, he says, we're going after the stronghold of Zion. It's coming down, and it's going to be my White House. I'm establishing my palace in the stronghold of Zion. I would like to...
to present in this message the stronghold of Zion as representing the stronghold of physical infirmity, sickness, and disease. Now, there are many kinds of strongholds, and you can apply this to any stronghold that resists the will of God in your life, in your city, in your region. So, I'm just going to apply it to the stronghold of physical infirmity. You can connect the dots and apply it to your stronghold in whatever manner is appropriate. But the reason I'm going to apply the stronghold of Zion as representing the stronghold of physical infirmity is because of this statement in our passage. You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. There is a stronghold in the church in 2020. I am bringing this message in the year 2020, the year of coronavirus. In 2020, there is a stronghold that sits in the middle of the church. We have been able to conquer land all around it, but there stands this stronghold. It's the stronghold of physical affliction, infirmity, sickness, and disease. And there is this stronghold that it's almost like the enemy taunts us. He says, you can have everything else. You can have this, you can have that, but this one you will not have. You can have children's ministry. You can have youth ministry. You can you can minister to marriages. You can have a prayer ministry. You can have a prayer room, an intercessory ministry. You can minister to, to the homeless. You can minister to the poor. You can have a food bank. You can have a, a crisis pregnancy center. It's like the church is able to establish ministry in almost every area, but there stands in the middle of the church an area that says to the church today, you're not taking this one. I'm speaking of sickness, infirmity, disease, which, of course, for those of you that understand, I represent a a key example of that, I suffer from an infirmity in my voice, in my throat. I think you can tell from the sound of this film and from the fact that I have a microphone resting immediately on my lips that I'm struggling to speak because of a physical infirmity. So I'm relating very personally to this message. And there is a mocking spirit that says to the church in this hour, you're not coming in here. You've tried in the past, but it's not going to happen. And I just want to speak over that. I want to say to that mocking spirit, Second Samuel 5, verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, and I am declaring to sickness, infirmity, disease, and the body of Christ. Nevertheless, the son of David is going to take this stronghold. That voice wants to say to us, not in America, not in 2020. You've got too many 
hospitals, you got too many doctors, you got too much health care, you have too many options, your eyes are, are on every other direction, you, you're too rich, you're too soft, you're too stagnant, you're too sluggish, you're not taking it. And I say in the Holy Spirit, this stronghold is coming down. The Son of David is going to give us the stronghold of affliction, infirmity, and disease. And I say it in Jesus' name. The stronghold of sickness and disease and infirmity, it's coming down. God is going to give us the keys of the kingdom. Verse 8 of our text. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. There are a couple interesting phrases in this passage. First of all, it says, the blind and the lame who are hated by David's soul. What an interesting phrase. I'll tell you what it means to me. My soul hates affliction. I hate infirmity. I have been held in a prison of physical affliction and infirmity for 28 years. For 28 years now, every word has been painful for me to speak. And I understand now, because of my personal experience, I understand what infirmity does to people. I connect with it now. I realize how it sucks the life out of you, how it robs you of your dreams and your vision and your hopes and your life. It is a sucking, depleting, depressing thing. When you have a physical affliction that takes the life out of you, it, it incarcerates people. It puts them in prisons, in prison houses of physical infirmity, affliction, and disease. I hate cancer. I hate multiple sclerosis. I hate cystic fibrosis. I hate migraines. I hate fibromyalgia. I hate diabetes. I hate how spirits of affliction and infirmity will come against the human race and will come against the people of God to steal kill and to destroy, to destroy hopes, to destroy dreams, to destroy visions, to destroy purpose. There are Christians today, they love Jesus with all their heart, filled with the Spirit, love the Lord, and they're 
destiny is robbed and stolen because they are captives to physical infirmity. And I hate it. And if that's what David meant in that verse, I resonate with it. I hate blindness. I hate deafness. I hate every form of demonic oppression, mental illness. I hate it. The way demons will incarcerate and imprison people in physical conditions that steal and rob and destroy the fruitfulness that they could have in the kingdom of God. And Isaiah 14 verse 17 says this, that when, the, when Satan gets you in his prison house, he never lets go his prisoners. Once he's got you in his prison house, there is no release. The only way to get release from the prison house of physical infirmity, disease that Satan incarcerates people in, the only way is for Jesus to give us the keys of the kingdom to loose the captives that are held in strongholds of infirmity and disease. Another phrase that's in our passage that's interesting. It says, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. What does that mean? Well, it certainly meant something to David, but let me tell you what it means to me. The blind and the lame do not come into the house of God. Think about it. Think about the church that you attend. How many people come in wheelchairs to your church? How many blind people, how many deaf people come to your church to take in your corporate worship services in your house, in the house of God, represented by your local church? You might have the rare brave heart who will navigate all the territory and make their way to your church. But for the most part, there are no stretchers in our church buildings, in our services. People don't come in on crutches. People don't come in in wheelchairs. They don't come in in uh, deaf, blind, and mute, and so on. And I never really fully connected why until this happened to me. When I took the hit in my voice, I'm just going to be a little bit transparent. The hardest part of my week became going to God's house and being with God's people because now I'm in a place with all these people that I love, and I can't talk to them. I can't sing with them. I can't, I can't pray with them. I can't respond with them. I, I, I can't be an active participant. I don't fit in this group anymore. And it became so wearying to my soul to go to the house of God. Now, I still do it, but I understand why people don't. There are people who are bound 
by infirmity. It takes them hours in the morning just to get bathed and ready so that they can get ready for their wheelchair so that that special needs vehicle can come and pick them up, take them to the church where they're wheeled in their wheelchair into the church building. And now they don't have a place for them. So they take them right up into the very front and they sit in the front of the sanctuary. And there's and, and then when the service is over, they're just going to leave in the very condition they came in. They're just going to turn them around, wheel them out, and take them back home. Why would I go to all that hassle, inconvenience? I can't dance with them. I can't sing with them. I can't talk with them. I can't interact. I can't do what they do. I can't be an active participant in the thing. Why would I go to all that hassle to sit there like this unusual person in the middle of all these healthy people and here I am with all my issues only to be wheeled out of the meeting in the very same condition I came in. It's just too hard. And they don't come to our meetings. They're not in the house. Do not take it to mean they're not in your city. I'm telling you, your city is full of captives bound by prisons of affliction, infirmity, and disease. And just because they're not in your building on a Sunday morning, just because they're not in the house of God on a Sunday morning, does not mean they're not in your city. And I'm declaring in the Holy Spirit, one of these days, God is going to give us this stronghold. And when he does, you will be surprised. They're going to come from all over. They're going to come in their wheelchairs. They're going to come with their prosthetics. They're going to come with their, with their crutches. They're going to come on stretchers. They'll be delivered by ambulances to your church building. They're going to come from all over. When the sound goes out, God is delivering the captives in the house of God. When the sound goes out, God is visiting his people. He's giving us the keys of the kingdom. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. Cancers are disappearing. Diabetes is being healed instantaneously. When the sound goes out that God is visiting his people, that Jesus is in the house, I'm telling you, the captives are going to come out of the woodwork. They're going to come out of their hovels, out of their prison houses, out of their hospitals, and they're going to come where they ought to be in the house of God, where the keys of the kingdom are being used to release the captives that are bound by prisons of affliction and infirmity. And my heart yearns within me for the day that Jesus Christ releases his power in the church. I'm yearning for the day. Lord Jesus, would you give us the keys of the kingdom? Would you loose the captives that are bound? They sit in their hovels, in their cell 
any deliverance. And I'm declaring in the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is going to give us the keys of the kingdom. And the prison houses are going to be opened. And the blind will be loosed. The deaf will be loosed. Cancers will disappear. The power of God is going to visit the church. And it will be said, God is in the house. Now David is going to supply both strategy and incentive for taking the water shaft, taking the stronghold. First of all, he's going to provide the strategy. David goes, whoever takes the stronghold of Zion is going to do it by way of the water shaft. That's the way in to the stronghold, the water shaft. Now, I said it already, I'm going to say it again. You're not going to get to the water shaft where the water enters from the Gihon Spring and it goes 30 feet into the mountain to the inner pool. You're not going to enter through that 30-foot tunnel. You're going to enter through the 500-foot tunnel, the one that's the outlet, because the entrance... The source of the water is protect, protected by the inhabitants of Zion, but they're not paying any attention to the outlet. That's the other side of the mountain. That's a 500-foot tunnel through the mountain, and the, 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 there's no regard for that. And David's like, here's the strategy. You're going to have to crawl on your belly through 500 feet of, or, or 500 yards, excuse me, let me get my measurement right, 500 yards, through 500 yards of underground mire, slime, mud, critters, I don't even know what kind of critters live in that kind of a tunnel, but you're going to have to go on your belly 500 yards through the mountainside. I've got to check my measurements here. Is it 500 yards? It's 500 feet. Let me get it right. 500 feet, not yards. 500 feet through the, this tunnel Take get in the middle of the mountain where the pool is, and then you have to find your way through that other channel of, uh, of uh, tunnels to the foot of the water shaft. And then you go up the water shaft. And so David gives the strategy. He says, whoever takes the stronghold, they're going to gain access, not through the gate of the stronghold, you're going to gain access through the water shaft, coming up into the middle of the city itself. Now, I have a question, and you don't know the answer, but here's my question. Is it possible that when David was a kid, he himself had crawled 150 feet up that outlet? into the heart of the mountain and snooped around inside that water shaft. Is it possible? Here's why I think it's possible. David, he's got the mo 
proxy for it. I mean, he's, the, he's just the kind of kid that's going to take on something like that. Plus, he's a shepherd. He lives in the next town over, Bethlehem. And shepherds in those days, they'd wander all over the country. I'm telling you, David had his turn with his sheep right in that neighborhood. And he knew where that at where that outlet was, where the water came out from the water shaft. And, uh, and David, I, I just wonder, was it possible that maybe sometime in his youth that David's like, ah, somebody dare me and I'll just crawl the whole way. I wonder, did he himself actually crawl the thing, get it go in there and watch them take the water out of the pool? I don't know. The way he talks about it, it's like he understands what's going on there. I wonder if he himself had actually done it as a kid. But he's giving the strategy, you're going to take it by way of the water shaft. And then he gives the incentive. The incentive is, if you're the first one to do this, you'll be captain over the whole army. Turns out that one of his nephews likes this idea. Joab is one of David's nephews, a young kid. He's in his 20s, maybe 25 years old. And Joab is like, Captain Joab. I like the sound of that. It feels right. And the incentive touched something in this young guy's heart. And he's like, oh, I want to give it a shot. I want to see if I can take the stronghold of Zion. And so Job, he's like, I'm going for it. Now, how did Job do this? Now, much of this is my imagination because Nobody, none of us were there. We don't really know how this happened. So I'm just going to give you my best guess at how Joab took the stronghold of Zion. And if I miss some few, you know, if I miss a few details, we get to the other side and you get the real story. Be nice to me. I'm just giving it my best shot. So my first theory is, I think it's a night job. I don't think that Job is going to go over to the outlet where the, the where the tunnel has its outlet on the other side of the mountain. I don't think he's going to go to the outlet in the middle of the day when people are up and around and somebody's like, hey, what's that guy doing going in the tunnel over there? I think it's a nighttime job. So it's I'm going to put it at, let's call it 11 p.m. at night. 12, whatever, midnight. And Job is like in the, at night, he goes over to where the tunnel is and he's probably got to clean out some mire and stones and mud and muck and, you know, it's kind of clogged, but he's like, I wonder what kind of critters are up in that thing anyways. But, okay, here he goes. Now, I don't think he's going to take a sword with him because this tunnel is not, built to be, you know, loose and commodious. I mean, if you're going to chisel through a mountain 500 feet, you, you, you're just going to do the bare minimum. And so whoever chiseled this tunnel, the guy's not 
trying to get make it spacious. He's just trying to get his body through, and he's trying to make a tunnel for water. So Job is going to work his way through some real tight spaces that have been, uh, what can I say, moldy, slimy, wet, greasy, muddy, yucky, crittery, 500 feet of it. And he gets himself on his belly. It doesn't have room for a sword in this thing. Gets himself on his belly and he starts crawling on his belly, on his hands and knees, 500 feet into the heart of the mountain. Did he have a flashlight? I'll let you answer that question. It's blacker than black. Not only is it midnight, but it's the heart of a mountain, a tunnel in the middle of a mountain, blacker than black. This may help you understand why you're in a season of blackness. If you're in a season of blackness where the lights have gone out, you can't make sense of anything, and you have no idea what's happening in your life, and everything you're trying to feel your way, but you have no idea where you're going, is it possible? He is using your season of blackness to train your spirit so that you can take on the water shaft. David, excuse me, Job, on his belly, crawling through this slimy, grimy, wet tunnel. Did it overflow a little bit? He's probably getting all wet and slimy all over his body. And he's crawling and making his way 150 feet into the middle of the mountain until he gets to a place where, plop, he's in a pool of water. He just made it to the underground cistern. I reckon he's going to wash himself off. Now, he's being very quiet. There's indication, actually, in the text that maybe somebody went with him. So it could have been that he had another guy following him. Uh, so he gets into the cistern. And he's going to be very quiet because he doesn't want the guards who are at the entrance to the Gihon Spring, where the fortification is, the guards there, he doesn't want them aware that he's in the heart of this thing. No, he's in the middle of this pool, this cistern, and uh, he's trying to be very quiet. But everything is by feel because he has no map. He doesn't know, you know, just where is that that walkway that will take you to the water shaft. He doesn't know, so he's got to feel his way around. He finds an opening. He's, okay, this feels like... And so he finds, by feel only, he finds there's a, a, a walkway, some steps and so on, to where the water shaft is. So now he's making his way through this corridor, up the steps, and into a clearing, and he's, he, he's going, ooh, this has got to be the water shaft. He feels
feels the walls. They're smooth. You can see it. There's photographs on Google. You can actually see Warren's shaft. You can see how smooth the walls are of this water shaft. They're smooth. And some professional climbers have actually been able to climb the water shaft with their equipment. But I don't think Job is able to climb this water shaft. It's just too smooth. He's not a, he's not a mountain climber. How did Joab get up that 50-foot water shaft? Yes, 50-foot water shaft, smooth walls. How does Joab get up there? I don't know. You don't know, but I do have a theory. I think, I think they had a rope, a 50-foot rope that went all the way down the water shaft that people could walk up and down when it was your turn to be a guard. You had to, you know, shimmy your way down the rope or climb your way back up the rope when your shift was finished. And so there was a limited amount of traffic of people that had to, you know, go up and down the rope. And my theory is they kept the rope in place. I don't think they pulled it up at night. They may have pulled it up at night for a few years, but when the years turned into decades, which turned into scores of years and probably centuries, this system of getting water into the stronghold was possibly centuries old. We don't, I, we, there's no way to know just how long they've been doing this. But after so many years, you're like, you know what, we're not going to pull the rope up at night. We've got guards at the entrance. If there's any problem, they're going to sound the alarm and then we'll pull the rope up at that time. So I think the rope had become a permanent fixture on this 50-foot water shaft. I think Joab found that rope and climbed. Maybe a buddy is with him. He climbs the rope 50 feet up and is now in the middle of the stronghold. And by this time, I'm going to put it, let's put it at 2 a.m. Who knows what time of morning or night it was, but I'm going to put it at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., something like that. 2 a.m. in the morning, Joab is in the middle of the stronghold. This is a settlement. People are sleeping. They've got homes. They've got houses. They've got they've got places where they're sleeping for the night. And it's a ghost town right now because everybody's asleep. And nobody knows that Joab has just popped up the water shaft. He goes over to the gate. Now, at the gate, they have a guardhouse, I'm guessing. And there's a guard watching. He's posted to watch at the gate, and that's my guess. And and Dave and Joab is, excuse me, Joab is like, okay, the guard's asleep there in the gate in the guardhouse. Uh, let's just knock off the guard. Well, for a guy like Joab, easy to knock off a guard. So that guy's dead. That's that's easy. Now the hard part. We have to open this gate. How does the gate work anyways? Well, he figures it out. There's a bar, a horizontal bar on the gate that goes into the wall and you have to pull the bar back in order to open the gate. And so Job 
tries to pull the bar back, it's locked. They have a lock on the bar. And to open the gate, it's going to require a key. There is a key that will unlock the bar. So you can move the bar and then open the gate. It's locked. Where's the key? And so now Job is looking around. He's trying to find a key. Is there a key hanging on a nail? Is there a key uh, hanging by the door, by the gate? He can't find the key. Where is the key that unlocks this blasted door? Something comes to his mind. Check the guard's belt. He goes over to the dead guard that he's just killed and checks his belt. The key is on the guard's belt. This is my imagination. <laughs> he takes the key from the guard's belt, goes to the gate, and now has to figure out how do you put this key into this bar? It's all iron. It's, I, it may have been a wooden bar, a plank of wood. I'm going to guess it was a steel bar. I don't know. You don't know, but I, I'm thinking it's steel. It's, it, it's an iron gate. It's an iron bar. And somehow there's a key that unlocks the bar so that it'll move and the gate can open. And he's got this key. He's trying to figure out how do you find, where does this key go in? And it's metal on metal. And somebody hears him and they're like, hey, what's going on down there? Job freezes. They heard me. He waits five minutes. Okay, got to find out how to put this key in this thing. Where does the key go? How does it fit? Metal on metal. That's making noises. He hears footsteps. Somebody is coming to check him out. Adrenaline is filling his, his, his system right now. Sure, it would have been nice, Lord, if he'd given me a full moon tonight. How does this key fit into this lock? And he's now trying to find And then suddenly something, the key finds its place. He takes the bar. The bar moves. And somewhere around 2 a.m., 2.15, 2.30 in the morning, whatever time, Joab pushes the gate of the stronghold open. When the gate of Zion begins to open, the Israelite army has been watching for this. They're just over the knoll. They've been watching for that door to open. And when the door begins to open around 2, 2.30 in the morning, the bugle is sounded. It's time for attack. Job opens the gate to the city and the entire Israel army, David probably leading them, the army of Israel, David in charge, and they enter the stronghold and the stronghold is taken in minutes. Joab doesn't take the stronghold of Zion. He just opens.
doors that are opened from the inside. Maybe that's why God has you in this prison. Maybe that's why you're in this stronghold. Maybe that's why you're on the inside. God wants to give you a key to open the stronghold from the inside. Once that door is open and once the stronghold is accessible, now the body of Christ can enter through that open door and take the stronghold for Christ in the name of Jesus. Lord, would you give us some men and women who will be willing to crawl through darkness, call, crawl through demon dark places, corridors, and the spirit, the rigor of it, the darkness of it, the horror of it, the, the, the pain, the struggle in order to open the gates from the inside. Jesus, give it to us. So, here's what I believe happened. When Joab opened that gate from the inside and the stronghold was taken. He took the key that opened that door. <coughs> Excuse me. He took the key that opened that door and presented it to David and said, Your high, your, 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 your honor, your majesty, here is the key to Zion. The key of David was earned that day when the stronghold of Zion was taken. It was the key to David's White House. And it became it came to represent the key to the seat of kingdom authority in the Davidic dynasty. So that when Jesus, in the book of Revelation, he says to John, he says, I have the key of David. That means that he holds the key to the authority of the Davidic kingdom as the son of David, Jesus, holds now the key of David. There might be someone listening to my storytelling that might be feeling a little bit like this. You know, Bob, that's a, it's a, it's a, it, you're making uh, you know, a lot of assumptions and you're trying to draw out a story from a very small passage of scripture in the Old Testament. And Bob, it's just a little bit too Old Testament for me. Okay, let me try to help you with a New Testament equivalent. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried. He descended into the corridors of hell. He went into the darkest places of hell. And then on the third day, he came up through the shaft of hell and resurrected on the third day. And he opened the gates of hell from the inside. It was an inside job. And you're called in the way of the cross. 
Jesus in his path of great death, a great burial, darkness, tunneling through Sheol, taking on demons so that you can take the stronghold that's before you and open the door from the inside. When you open that door to that stronghold, now the body of Christ can enter and take dominion and conquer and see the kingdom of God move forward. Because Jesus died, went into the heart of the earth and came through the shaft of hell and resurrected because he opened the gates of hell from the inside. He is now called the captain of our salvation. It was a qualifying exploit that has made Jesus Christ the captain of our salvation. And now he gives us the opportunity to become captains in the army to who also qualify for ranks and stations and become captains, lieutenants and generals in the army of God because of the journey we've taken by his grace to open a stronghold from the inside. Lord Jesus, I'm asking that you would grant grace to my friends watching and listening to this message. Give us strength and grace to do the darkness, take on the duress, press in in the power of the Spirit, go deep into the heart of God, taking on the demonic powers, coming up, opening the strongholds from the inside so that the body of Christ can take new territory in the grace of God. Jesus, give us the keys. You said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And we are asking today, Lord Jesus, Give us these keys. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.